Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware It's time we stop, children, what's the sound? Everybody look what's going down Stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Stop, children, stop, children, stop music in connection to our guest this week, actor Gil Bellows, and a number of productions he's been connected to, including his thoughts as a male character in The Handmaid's Tale, what it means to him to portray real-life lawyer Gerald Chatham, who prosecuted the racist torture murderers of Emmett Till in the current dramatic series Women of the Movement and possible connections to the pandemic we're currently living through in love in the time of corona and two deaths of Henry Baker, in which one and one on screen may actually be three, not two. More about that coming up. But first, what about that knighthood by the British Queen on former Prime Minister and accused Iraq war criminal Tony Blair? That outrage has led to over a million signatures on a petition so far to have his knighthood withdrawn. And here's UK politician, broadcaster, writer, and former Pacifica host George Galloway with infuriated commentary presented on RT about all that, and followed by Afro-British writer, actor, and musical performer Tayo Aluko with a related impassioned poem he's just written. The Face of Britain, inspired by Tony Blair and the greedy and violent history of British colonialism and imperialism. Well, a moment or two before the new year, I read the dread news uh, that Tony Blair, the war criminal, the man responsible for a million dead people in Iraq, the man who sent extremism pulsing across the whole world, including here in our own country. The man who, with his friend Bill Clinton, paved the way for the economic crash by their grotesque light touch deregulation of the banks and the finance houses here in London. The abolition of the Glass-Steagall Act in the US and the light touch of Gordon Brown and Tony Blair brought us all crashing down and we have not recovered fully from it even now. All these years of austerity are because of the peculiar love affair between Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and the finance industry in the city of London. I am the face of Britain. Cool Britannia, they call me. I bestrode the world stage, chest expanded, powerful, bravely sending others' children to kill and be killed in the service of empire, of capital. I still reap the rewards of deception, 
and of exploitation of other people and their lands by my forebears and me. The sun sets, then it rises, and then it sets. And with every darkness, the night grows still, but not my mind. The anguished cries of the dispossessed, the groaning of the dying and the silence of the dead invade the calm of my nocturnal luxury. Though washed from my hands, their blood courses slowly into every morsel of my being, roughly like oil-soaked desert sand. Daily I awake and approach the mirror. The face that greets me is still vibrant, youthful, handsome, no crevices, wrinkles, or blemishes. I block out the voices in my inner ear that call out a strange name in the rhythm of the heart that left my chest for the highest bidder, cruel Britannia, cruel Britannia, cruel Britannia. Did you not see, Your Majesty, the millions of your subjects on the streets of Britain against the Iraq War in 2003? Millions of them, even before we knew what we know now, that it was all a pack of lies. Don't you see, Your Majesty, those families of our servicemen who were sent to their deaths or their disfigurement on a lie? Don't you see, Your Majesty, that Tony Blair lied to your parliament, lied to your armed forces, lied to your councillor, Sir John Chilcott, rest in peace, lied even to you, your majesty, must have lied even to you. Do you not see, your majesty, the hundreds of thousands of your subjects who have signed the petition in 36 hours, hundreds of thousands of them, demanding that you rescind this almost insane decision that you have made, and it was you who made it, not Boris Johnson, not Sir Keir Starmer, who welcomed it on behalf of the Labour Party, not the Speaker of the House of Commons. Your Majesty, it was you who made this decision to invite this war criminal, to reward this war criminal with your select company and your order of the garter. None of us will address him as Sir Anthony or Sir Tony. And that was George Galloway and poet Tayo Oluko railing against the honoring of Tony Blair in what may very well be a neo-imperialist awakening venture of the UK on the coattails of the US empire and its current militaristic threats in Eastern Europe. What prevails, time will tell. Stay tuned. And next on Arts Express, His name is Emmett Till. I want people to know that he is a good boy.
Women of the Movement, from a woman's point of view, tells the story of Mamie Till Mobley, mother of Emmett Till. You was the Trayvon Martin of the 50s. Emmett Till is a 14-year-old boy who wants to go on vacation to visit other family members in Mississippi. Let Bobo come on down there with us. Sending your child from Chicago to Mississippi in 1955, Jim Crow South is a big deal. Mississippi is not like Chicago. You're gonna have to take low and play small. While he was down there, he was accused of flirting with or whistling at a white woman. Goodbye! Bobo, oh, are you crazy? She's got a gun. And a few days later, some folks ended up kidnapping him out of his uncle's home. Where is he? Please, Lord, don't take him. Don't take him, please. He is then murdered, and this mother loses the joy of her life. This story is about a mother who finds this unbelievable strength. Mamie's decision to let the world see the brutality that had been visited upon her son was an incitement to the civil rights movement. I want a public wake. Let the people see what they did to my boy. When something happened to Negroes in the South, I said, that's, that's their business, not mine. The death of my son has shown me that whatever happens to any of us had better be the business of all of us. To honor Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley, our job is to tell the story authentically, including the ugly truth. This is a story about a family who put their own feelings aside for the betterment of their people. You see the journey of a black woman. It is up to all of us to do our part. We're always talking about how strong women are, but we never talk about how we get our capes. And those were stars involved in the production of Women of the Movement, a dramatic series about the mothers who fought for the legacy of Emmett Till, following the brutal torture and murder of this young boy in Jim Crow, Mississippi in 1955. And here to talk about his own portrayal in the production is Canadian actor Gil Bellows, appearing as the real-life prosecutor in the trial of Till's murderers along with a bit of positive mansplaining to share in his role as a doctor in The Handmaid's Tale and what that meant to him. Hey, how are you? Good morning and welcome. Well, thank you so very much for having me. You're currently in the dramatic series Women of the Movement about the horrifying race murder of Emmett Till and your real-life portrayal of Gerald Chatham, the lead prosecutor in the Emmett Till case. What can you say about why it was important for you to be part of this production and portraying Chatham? Well, um, th thank you for asking about that. Um, I would say that the, the privilege of playing Gerald Chatham uh, is, the, uh, is probably the, the pinnacle experience that I've had as a, as a, a professional. Mm. You know, to be a part of what I think is an important aspect of American history that's been sorely underrepresented and um, informing uh, society about the direct line between events that took place um, in 1955. Uh, and while we were filming it, we were filming the, 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 the first uh, televised murder trial in America uh, while the George Floyd murder trial mm. was going on. And so um, that in and of itself uh, was very impactful for me. Mm. Getting to know the South, um, getting to know the state of Mississippi, the complex, beautiful state of Mississippi, and really understanding the bravery of Gerald Chatham. If you listen, if 
you look up the transcript to his closing argument, um, it's really one of the, I believe that uh, um, Atticus Finch, in many ways, is the literary adaptation of Gerald Chatham. That's how that that's how much I think of that man. Mm. It was sorry. I just I you know I I to be a part of that story to 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 shine a light on the imbalances and the injustices that occur in this country still. Um, you know, uh, um, sign me up. <laughs> uh, what a what a privilege. Now, without giving too much away about the film, Two Deaths of Henry Baker and your character, what were the challenges for you in this unique storytelling and at one point having to beat yourself up? Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, why don't I start with the second question first? Because um, when it comes to beating ourselves up, aren't we the best at doing that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really. I mean, who 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 does a better job at um, at um, at wiping the floor with us than our own selves? So, um, to to actually uh, do that um, physically, uh, kind of felt cathartic in a strange way. Um, uh, and then the uh, the first question, the challenges. Well, every every story you do, of course, has um, has its own innate challenges, and then the production, uh, the boundaries of your experience, um, offer their own challenges too. With this one, the opportunity to play uh, two roles um, uh, was, uh, you know, g- giving an actor an opportunity to play two roles is sort of like giving an actor uh, a-, a microphone. Um, uh, a walkie-talkie or a whoopee cushion. It's very dangerous. <laughs> and uh, um, and I wanted to try it. I wanted to see if I could explore a few things that one character wouldn't allow in a mirror or, at least, or maybe the opposite of a mirror might allow. Um, secondly, uh, to do it in a very condensed period of time, which the production um, had, uh, offered its own challenges too. And... You know, um, and that sense of um, adventure within the experience of um, telling a story is always the thing that intrigues me. Mm. You know, it was uh, it was exciting. And I wanted to ask you: you've also appeared as a doctor in *The Handmaid's Tale*, and we've heard lots about that production from the women on both sides of the camera. But what can you say about *The Handmaid's Tale* from the male point of view? What drew you to it, and why you feel it's had such an enduring impact? I was asleep before. That's how we let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. You girls will serve the leaders and their barren wives you will bear children for them. There's an eye in your house. We'll send you to the colonies. You'll be cleaning up toxic waste and then you'll die. We only wanted to make the world better. Better? Better never means better for everyone. Remember your scripture. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who suffer for the cause of righteousness.
is a very important right. And so to explore that in a, dra- a, a dramatized setting um, that is focused and pivoted on the woman's point of view in the city of Toronto, which is a place that is very special to me, working with a crew that I've worked with off and on for, well, I don't know, over 25 years on a show that I think is one of the best shows ever made. Let me just say this about that show. What they, they called me, they had me come early to work with their VFX crew and medical staff to learn how to do all the surgical procedures properly. To me, any place that thinks that way, yeah. that applies to the work that way, that looks at the craft that way, and then allows people to participate, that is class. Yeah. Um, in yeah. terms of your specific question, I love that role. That's why I, I did it, and to have the great good fortune of working with um, Yvonne and Anne and um, Elizabeth each of them incredible actresses um, and, uh, you know, incredible people. It was, a, it was one of the great working experiences I've ever had, and I was only there for a couple of weeks. Mm. And getting back to Two Deaths of Henry Baker, the story is very much about murdering for greed and nearly every character, including lawmen, lusting after gold. Would you say there's any connection of this story to the economic crisis we're living in right now during these pandemic years? And also in another TV series you're in, Love in the Time of Corona. Huh. Okay, well, the, I don't know if there's a direct correlation between um, Two Deaths of Henry Baker and Love in the Time of Corona. Um, if you see one, I'll be interested in what you <laughs> see. What I, what, what, what I would say about Okay, thank you, Gil Bellows, for calling in. Listen, it's a a pleasure. All right, thank you very much. Take care. And Two Deaths of Henry Baker is just out in release. And next up on the show, a couple of deep-dive presentations. First, would Captain America be the good guy in real life? Captain America, imperialism, regime change, and the mass surveillance state. The Zeitgeist Channel analyzing the past, exploring the present, and imagining the future. Then, a meditation on storytelling connected to Hollywood, or maybe not. World War II is often considered the last good war. While we had our share of propaganda, there seemed to be a clear idea of who was good and who was evil. One thing seemed to be certain, America and its allies fought for freedom, and the Axis power fought for control and oppression. In the Marvel Universe, Hydra was the organization that personified these fascist ideals. 
Captain America defeated them, but was then frozen in the ice only to wake up 70 years later to a far different world. For as long as I can remember, I just wanted to do what was right. I guess I'm not quite sure what it is anymore. And I thought I could throw myself back in and follow orders, sir. So what is Steve talking about here, and what actually happened to America in real life after World War II? This looks like a massive national security operation, but it's not far off from the real world. There are currently 22 aircraft carriers in service and 11 of them belong to the US. The UK, China and Italy are all tied in second place, each with two. The US has a military budget of $778 million per year, which is more than the next 11 countries combined. All of this is in the name of national security. Captain America doesn't seem too satisfied with this explanation. These new long-range precision guns can eliminate a thousand hostiles a minute. The satellites can read a terrorist's DNA before he steps outside his spider hole. We're gonna neutralize a lot of threats before they even happen. That the punishment usually came after the crime. We can't afford to wait that long. This isn't freedom, this is fear. After Hydra was defeated in World War II, the American government set up SHIELD, which was organized to protect the United States from all possible threats, similar to Homeland Security. Hydra was not killed off, however, and they had managed to infiltrate SHIELD over the past 70 years. Hydra was founded on the belief that humanity could not be trusted with its own freedom. What we did not realize was that if you try to take that freedom, they resist. The war taught us much. Humanity needed to surrender its freedom willingly. After the war, SHIELD was founded and I was recruited. The new Hydra grew, a beautiful parasite inside shield. For 70 years, Hydra has been secretly feeding crisis, reaping war. And when history did not cooperate, history was changed. In the Marvel Universe, this totalitarian ethos is confined to Hydra. But how does it apply in the real world? Let's take it apart piece by piece. Zola is correct, and in the real world, freedoms are often given up willingly. Following the 9-11 attacks in 2001, the Patriot Act was signed, resulting in unchecked government power to search through financial records, medical history, internet use, travel patterns, and much more. Although this had already been occurring to some extent, as seen in the 1998 film Enemy of the State, it greatly expanded the government's ability to do surveillance while simultaneously removing oversight. In 2011, President Obama signed into law the National Defense Authorization Act, which gives the government the power to arrest and indefinitely detain American citizens without charges. This was meant to only be used on suspected terrorists, but as seen just a couple of days ago, the definition of terrorist is constantly expanding. Iran, Cuba, Nicaragua. These are just a few of the dozens of coups that the US has staged since World War II. Some of the coups have been the result of direct military intervention, while others have been the result of the US financing and arming rebels. And then there has also been U.S. support of one side during an election. Many times these coups have resulted in blowback, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, the 1979 Iranian Revolution, or the civil war in Libya that saw the return of the slave trade. All of this has been to advance Western interests around the world. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. 
The military-industrial complex refers to the relationship between the military and the defense industry that funds it. There are many large corporations such as Raytheon and Halliburton who have made insane profits off of the wars. In addition, many generals after retiring will take jobs making over a million dollars per year as lobbyists for the defense industry. This has formed what some have called a shadow government of unelected corporate profiteers and bought politicians who assist them. Of all the things that you hope are not true about the way the world works, yeah. that would probably be number one. Well, you can take your tinfoil hat off because the military-industrial complex is a real thing. Um, I mean, you, you, you see that very directly through contributions that are being made uh, to politicians by different defense contractors and the corresponding votes that are then taken. Uh, but you also see this corruption that's happening before our very eyes uh, happening within places like the Pentagon where you either have people in uniform or civilians who are working in contracting, for example, in the Pentagon, laying the groundwork for writing up these contracts, major multi-billion dollar contracts with these big defense contractors, and then lay down the uniform or you retire from service, either as a civilian or in the military, and then you turn around, leave that door and walk into another door working for the very same contractor that you just wrote the contract for. The 21st century is a digital book. Zola taught Hydra how to read it. Your bank records, medical histories, voting patterns, emails, phone calls, your damn SAT scores. Zola's algorithm evaluates people's past to predict their future. What then? Then the inside helicarrier scratched people off the list. A few million at a time. The Terrorist Screening Center is the real-life government watch list, but unlike Hydra's plans, they have not yet taken the Minority Report-style step of neutralizing any domestic threats before they have committed a crime. They have done this abroad, though, as the war in Iraq was infamously referred to as a preemptive strike. There have been some publicly expressed desires to expand this government watch list, as former CIA Director John Brennan expands on that in this clip. So I know looking forward that the members of the, the Biden team who have been nominated or have been appointed are now moving in laser-like fashion to try to uncover as much as they can about what looks very similar to insurgency movements that we've seen overseas, where they germinate in different parts of the country and they gain strength and it brings together an unholy alliance frequently of religious, ex religious extremists, authoritarians, fascists, bigots, uh, racists, nativists, uh, even libertarians. Shifting back to Captain America, Steve ends up destroying the security apparatus that Hydra spent decades building up, amounting to billions of dollars of damage and the equivalent of the destruction of several aircraft carriers. Furthermore, Cap and his team make all of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s records public, leading to this showdown on Capitol Hill. He could explain how this country is expected to maintain its national security now that he and you have laid waste to our intelligence apparatus. Hydra was selling you lies, not intelligence. Many of which you seem to have had a personal hand in telling. Agent, you should know that there are some on this committee who feel, given your service record, both for this country and against it, that you belong in a penitentiary, not mouthing off on Capitol Hill. What Natasha Romanoff did in the film very closely mirrors the actions of both Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. Snowden leaked classified information that exposed the extent of government surveillance. What he did was actually mild compared to what Romanov did in the film, as he did not leak all of the information that he could have. Julian Assange is the founder of WikiLeaks, which was the platform for leaked government information. This site notoriously hosted leaks provided by Chelsea Manning, which infamously exposed US airstrikes killing civilians in Iraq. Unlike Romanov, neither of these men are seen as heroes, as Snowden is in asylum in Russia, and Assange is currently languishing in a British prison. The Sokovia Accords, approved by 117 countries, it states that the Avengers shall no longer be a private organization. Instead, they'll operate under the supervision of a United Nations panel only when and if that panel deems it necessary. 
In the comics, Ross's lust for power further manifests itself as he forms a team of his own called the Thunderbolts, and he eventually becomes Red Hawk. But Steve even mistrusts people in his own team. Phase two is S.H.I.E.L.D. uses the cube to make weapons. Sorry, the computer was moving a little slow for me. Rogers, we gathered everything related to the Tesseract. This does not mean I'm that we're I'm sorry, making... Nick. I was wrong, Director. The world hasn't changed a bit. Every time someone tries to win a war before it starts, innocent people die. Every time. We're the Avengers. We can bust arms dealers all the live long day, but that up there, that's... That's the end game. How are you guys planning on beating them? Together. We'll lose. And we'll do that together, too. Captain America objects to both Nick Fury and Tony Stark trying to create powerful weapons in the name of security. They want to build these weapons to defend against aliens, which is far more extreme than any threat that we face on Earth. Yet Cap still objects. In the real world, it's unlikely that many of us would share the same opinion. The ambitions of the security state are first depicted by the Red Skull, but then via the backstory of the Winter Soldier, it's shown that Hydra spread to the US and Soviet Union simultaneously. It appears that Bucky had been working exclusively for the Soviet Union though, as Black Widow actually makes a reference to this in Civil War. Since World War II, the US and the Soviet Union fought a series of proxy wars, including the Korean War, the war in Vietnam where the Soviets supported the Viet Cong, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan where the US provided support such as Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen. After the Soviet Union fell in 1991, the first president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, was very friendly with the US and NATO. This could possibly provide a real-world explanation as to how Bucky ended up under the control of the American branch of Hydra. Hydra. Shield. Two sides of a coin. There are other facilities doing Hydra's good work around the world. Both Hydra and General Ross were a part of a multinational effort for surveillance and control, and Captain America opposed both. We will not, however, let misfortune drive us back. We will fight to improve the world we wish to join. I am grateful to the Avengers for supporting this initiative. All of this leads me to wonder, would Captain America be the good guy in real life? Imagine someone who destroys aircraft carriers, dumps a bunch of classified intelligence data for everyone to see, resists everyone's attempts to build planetary security systems, and refuses to be under anyone's control. What would Captain America think about widespread regime change or mass surveillance. That's the Zeitgeist Guys, the six-part series that I want to do about my favorite comic book movies. And now on Arts Express... Hi, this is Jack Shalom, something a bit different this time. Have you ever had this experience, as I've had many times? I'm at a party and I meet somebody interesting, or I'm at a friend's house, and inevitably uh, someone asks, what's new, uh, what have you been working on? And though I may have a raft of projects that I've been working on, I suddenly become all muckle-mouthed, and it just becomes a trail of, uh, well, I'm writing something it's about, or working on something, and it's, uh, uh, it's kind of hard to explain, and yeah. Or even if I just want to tell a friend about the new movie I saw, and they ask what it's about, I often tell this, like, completely meandering, unfocused tale and have no way to put my thoughts into some succinct form. And as their eyes glaze over, I know I've lost my chance, and it's not long before the fascinating person I'm talking to is desperately looking around for the hors d'oeuvres and cheese dip. To the rescue! A book that I thought I would hate but turned out to be a really interesting and useful book. The name of the book is Sell Your Story in a Single Sentence, Advice from the Front Lines of Hollywood. And the author is Lane Schefter Bishop. Now, <laughs> for somebody as unbusiness-oriented as me, the book sounds way too business-focused and commercial for me. 
Look, I have no business sense. Would I be on WBAI if I did? So I thought I was going to get some mealy-mouthed advice about how to impress the bigwigs you run across. And I'm really allergic to books that tell you how to be a financial or managerial success. But it turned out I was pleasantly surprised. The book actually has some excellent advice about telling a story succinctly. And yes, there are times in your life, many times, when that is exactly what is called for. This book is definitely good for writers, directors, actors, publicists, and folks like that. But it's also great for just anybody who wants to be more clear and articulate. What Lane Bishop, the author, introduces is the idea of a log line, a well-crafted single sentence that highlights what's unique about the work. So if you've only got one minute to make an impression when someone asks, what's your story about, you can reply with an answer that leads you to more conversation. And that's really what a log line is. It's a way to get the other person interested enough to keep you both engaged in the conversation. Some people call it the elevator speech. What do you say about your work if you only have one minute in an elevator to a person you want to reach? Okay, kid, you got one minute to tell me what your project's about. Go! Well, he here's a fun little game to help get across the idea more clearly. I'll give you the log line that author Lane Bishop came up with. You tell me what the famous film is. In a dystopian future, a girl must survive a government-created game where teens kill teens in order to save her sister's life. Right. It's The Hunger Games. Couldn't be anything else, right? It's uniquely The Hunger Games. Okay, here's another one. A boy's wish to be adult size is granted, but after living as a child trapped in an adult's body and world, he's desperate to return to being a carefree kid. Did you guess the Tom Hanks film Big? Well, it, it's not important if you did or not, but the important thing is, did the description strike you as a unique storyline and get you wanting to know more? But of course, guessing the story from the logline is easy. The harder but more useful part is crafting the logline in the first place. Now, it, it might become more clear how to create a logline if I tell you first what it's not. It's not a summary of the whole story. And it's also not some generality like one girl's heartwarming coming-of-age story, because that's too generic. It doesn't tell you specifically about your story. And it's not, please, a high-concept pitch like, it's Jurassic Park meets Men in Black. What does that even mean? That only tells you how much alike a story is to other things, though in what ways we don't know, rather than what makes it unique. What makes a good log line is that it answers three important questions in one compact sentence. One, who is the protagonist? Two, what does the protagonist want? And three, what is at stake? The log line involves figuring out the unique and most compelling answers to these questions. All right, let's, let's try it together. Since I have Sidney Poitier on my mind today, let's take A Raisin in the Sun as an example. To get your thoughts flowing, first here's a scene from that great play and movie. This thing, fly-by-night operation. I mean, we got this thing figured out, me, Willie and Bobo. Bobo? Huh. Look, we figured the initial investment on the place to be about $30,000. That's $10,000 a piece. Now, of course, we got to spread around a few hundred so as not to spend your life waiting for them clowns to let your license get approved. You mean graft? Don't call it that goes to show you how much women know about the world. Baby, don't nothing happen for you in this world unless somebody gets paid off. Walter, leave me alone. He checks, you're gonna be cold. See? The man say to his woman, I got me a dream. She says, eat your eggs, they're getting cold. Man say to his woman, help me now to take a hole in this world somehow. And she says, eat your eggs and go to work. I tell you, I gotta change my life because I'm choking to death. And all you say to me is eat these eggs. Well, the first question we have to ask is, who is the protagonist? Now, there could be a lot of interesting and important characters in a story, but only one is the protagonist. And it's true that Raisin is an ensemble piece, but who is it who is going on the journey, who is risking something? And further, more importantly, whose actions propel the story forward? 
Well, in this case, it's clearly the role that Sidney Poitier played, Walter Lee Younger, the chauffeur whose family has run into a chunk of insurance money. Okay, next, what does he want? And here it should be something concrete, not emotional like he wants love or freedom, but something tangible. Well, in this story, Walter wants money, a lot of it, and to make it as easily as it can be made. In particular, he wants to take money from a white block association to stay out of their white neighborhood. And finally, what's at stake? Well, if he takes the money, the rest of his family will shun him and his son will never learn what it is to be a moral man. So, now that we have the three elements, who the protagonist is, what the protagonist wants, and what the stakes are, we can write a logline. Here's my rough draft. At the risk of losing his dignity and son's respect, a poor black chauffeur is tempted by the money offered by white homeowners to stay out of their neighborhood. Well, it's a rough draft and could be improved, but it's a good beginning. In this case, I put the stakes first to make it more interesting, the risk of losing his dignity and son's respect. And Lane Bishop offers lots of advice to make the log lines even tighter and more compelling. By the way, you may have noticed that I didn't include any names in this log line, because the truth is that log lines are unimportant when one hasn't even read the work being pitched yet. It just clutters up the log line. Tell you what, let's try another film, Casablanca. And for your enjoyment and edification, here's a brief scene from that classic. If you don't mind, you fill in the names. That'll make it even more official. You think of everything, don't you? And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But why my name, Richard? Because you're getting on that plane. I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him till the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you? Last night Last you said... Last night we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But, Richard, no, I'm... Now, but... you've got to listen to me. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Okay. Again, who is the protagonist? Who is it who has something at stake that drives the plot forward? Is the protagonist Rick, Ilsa, or Victor Laszlo? It can be a hard decision sometimes, but the protagonist here is Rick. It is Rick, the expat who runs a bar in Casablanca during World War II, who has to make the decisions that will drive the story forward. What does he want? He wants the love of his life, Ilsa, to stay with him rather than leave with her husband-resistant fighter, Victor Laszlo. What's at stake if Laszlo is detained by the French Vichy government? It's a clear victory for the Nazis. But if Rick allows Laszlo to escape with Ilsa, he loses the one person in the world he's ever loved. Okay, so now we have the protagonist, what he wants, what the stakes are, and a lousy Humphrey Bogart imitation. So let's see if we can fashion a logline. I came up with an American expat running a bar in Vichy-controlled Morocco during World War II must decide between helping a resistance fighter escape and losing the one woman he's ever loved, the resistance fighter's wife. Well, not bad for a first draft, and as I said before, Lane Schefter Bishop's book will help you to really polish it even further. And I apologize for the lousy Bogart imitation. You didn't even know that's what it was, did you? Okay, what do you do with a log line once you have it? You memorize it so that you're able at a moment's notice ready to briefly and concisely talk about your latest project in a way that stimulates further conversation. So I'll give you an example of a situation that came up for me just a few months ago. I had the wild idea that I wanted to produce a radio production of a complete Shakespeare play called Measure for Measure. It's got a large cast, so it involved me reaching out to a lot of actors I know by email. But Measure for Measure is certainly one of the less familiar plays of Shakespeare's, and there was little chance that I would be able to entice them without at least a little description of the play's story. 
At first, I sent out a request with a long-winded account of the plots and subplots of the play. Frankly, I don't know if anyone even made it reading through to the end of my email. And then I thought about the book I had just read and said to myself, aha, that's what I need, a log line. So I went through the process of who is the protagonist, what does the protagonist want, and what are the stakes, and at last I came up with a log line for the play, which was something like this. A woman about to join a nunnery learns her brother has been arrested for sexual immorality, and her only hope to save her brother from execution is if she consents to sleep with the hypocritical deputy who arrested him. There it is, Shakespeare in one sentence. The good news is that everyone I wrote to was intrigued and wanted to know more. The bonus is that keeping that sentence in mind has guided me in rehearsals and will also be helpful when I reach out to potential audience members. But even if you're not working on any project, the logline is a very useful impromptu conversational guide to prevent the dreaded glazed and glassy eyeballs of indifference staring past you the next time you recount the story of your favorite movie, play, or novel. I've been talking about the book Sell Your Story in a Single Sentence by Lane Schefter Bishop. And this is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.